0: You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rathke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Trade is one of the top issues out there. President Trump has been focused on the US trade deficit, trade deficit in goods, that is, not in services, and on economic competition. China, with Europe, and with most of the rest of the world since he took office. Now, earlier this year, President Trump imposed tariffs on imported aluminum and steel, which prompted a backlash from the European Union and other parts of the world. The European Union imposed its own retaliatory measures on American uh, exports uh, to Europe. But that wasn't the end of it. Later, the president threatened to impose tariffs of up to 25 percent on imported automobiles from from Europe so where do we stand now and how serious is the danger of a trade war well It seems we had a truce back in July um, when President Trump and European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker met uh, at the White House, and in the Rose Garden, they announced that uh, they were going to try to take a more conciliatory approach. Here's what Jean-Claude Juncker had to say at the time.
1: We have to work together. We are representing half of the world trade. One trillion dollar is the trade uh, figure between us, and
0: so I think that we have to talk each to another and not at another. And this is the way President Trump put it. Uh,
1: Over the years, the United States has been losing hundreds of billions of dollars with the European Union, and we just want it to be a level playing field for our farmers, for our manufacturers, for everybody. And we also want a big beneficiary, frankly, to be the European Union. So we think it can be good for everybody, and that's what we're here to discuss.
0: How durable will this truce be? It's hard to tell, but just one month later, in August, at a campaign rally, President Trump raised again the possibility that the United States would put tariffs on European cars coming into the United States.
1: We're going to put a 25% tax on every car that comes from the European Union into the United States.
0: So how serious is the threat of a new escalation uh, in this trade war? And what would be its consequences? Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Zeitgeist, the AICGS podcast. I'm here with Peter Rashish, AICGS Senior Fellow and Director of the Geoeconomics Program. Welcome
1: Peter. Thanks, Jeff. It's good to be here to help uh, inaugurate our new venture.
0: You know, Perhaps you didn't feel like you had any choice but to be our first guest, but nonetheless, uh, I can attest that Peter is doing this willingly um, and that we're, uh, we're looking forward to talking today about trade. As you heard in our intro piece, there has been a truce holding for the last three months between the United States and the European Union, and the European Commission and the Trump administration have been carrying out negotiations, including at the level of the U.S. trade representative and the European Commissioner. So my question, I guess, to start off, uh, Peter, it's pretty clear that the Trump administration's negotiation style is maybe not to speak softly, but certainly to carry a big stick. And that big stick is is tariffs and other trade measures. Now, are auto tariffs the canary in the coal
1: mine uh, for the future of the US-EU trade re- relationship? Yeah, I think we we could say that. And for two reasons. First of all, if you look at the um, agreement uh, between President Trump and European Commission President Juncker, when they met on July 25th, they decided to uh, that new tariffs there be there would be put uh, they would put new tariffs on hold uh, while the two sides were negotiating uh, ways to bring their economies closer together uh, and including these these auto tariffs. So if the administration decided to impose those tariffs on Europe, I think that would be a sign that there had been a failure. Uh, Certainly, the Europeans would would interpret it as a sign there's been a failure to these negotiations, and I. I think, on the European side politically, it would be difficult for them to continue. I think it would also it would also be an important sign because it would show that the administration has decided to go for. A kind of short-term win to show that the administration um, can do something on behalf of uh, uh, U.S. workers and particularly auto workers, uh, and that that's that's more important than the longer-term goal of working together with uh, with Germans and Europeans to face the common economic challenge from China.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about those longer-term objectives because. We certainly hear a lot in Washington from the United States government about the uh, the role of China in the international economy uh, as being the principal uh, economic challenge that the United States has to confront. Um, so, so what does that look like in a U.S. European uh, context?
1: Well, I think there's a lot. Or there are a lot of common interests between the U.S. and and the EU uh, when you look at the challenge from China. The U.S. and the EU have their differences our economic models aren't exactly alike but we're but it, we're quite like minded when you look at some of the big issues like the rule of law the primacy of the individual free markets free trade and when you look at china what you have is a uh, a mostly state-directed economy. You have a lot of state-owned enterprises, but you have a lot of other enterprises with a lot of state influence. And uh, this creates an unlevel an un- playing field, and it should be in the common interest of, of the U.S. and the EU to, uh, to agree on ways to, uh, to push back against that. So. In a way, this is really a question about priorities. If the
0: United States and the European Union uh, agree that this th- that this challenge is the top priority, then they should be working together to confront
1: it. Right, and it seemed as if uh, we were moving in that direction. I say that for a number of reasons. Um, first, uh, over the last several months, the U.S., uh, the EU, and Japan have been meeting uh, at, at a ministerial level to talk about uh, rules for the global economy with China clearly in mind, uh, that process is, I think, um, gotten is as deepened. You look at if you look at the last uh, declaration that the that they made, the three sides made. It goes in a lot of detail about the kind of uh, problems we face together and the kind of rules we ought to have. Uh, then you see that we did, in, uh, the U.S. and the EU did launch this set of negotiations. You also see that the U.S. trade representative has uh indicated to Congress that it'd like to launch a trade negotiation with the P- Japan and when the U.K. is ready after leaving the EU with, with, with the U.K. as well. So uh, all that seemed to indicate that the U.S. wanted to kind of line up uh, if, if friendly countries, uh, uh, put aside some of the differences so that we could all face the China challenge uh, better together. So I think that if the, if, on the other hand, the administration decided to impose these auto tariffs, that would give you a sense that this movement that was that seemed to be underfoot uh, to construct a kind of uh, a, a, a set of uh, like-minded countries uh, to deal with China was that somehow that that um, uh, focus on on setting priorities was was somehow changed. So it's 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 a question of
0: how many fronts uh, of a trade war you can fight simultaneously.
1: That's right, and I think that. Um, What's key is whether the, the administration is willing and able to uh, recognize that the U.S. just might not be in a position anymore uh, to to handle uh, China all by itself, and to and to sort of operate uh, trade policy on 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 a, on on a number of fronts at the same time. I think that. Um, the U.S. does not have the same share of the global economy it used to have. China is a big and rising power, and I think that in order to uh, nudge China to sort of do the right thing, uh, it's going to need to work with the EU and probably Japan, and um to at the same time to want to uh, pursue some of my, what I would call sort of shorter term goals because I think there's some question as to whether longer term tariffs really uh, are a way to help improve an economy's global position. But the question is whether those shorter term goals are going to be so tempting that they're going to lose uh, from view the the longer term uh, priorities.
0: Got it. Well, you know, to come back to where we started, the question of automobile tariffs. You know, just. Uh by way of um, explanation. These would be under Section 232 of the Trade Expansion Act of 1962. And maybe it goes without saying, but isn't the very idea that imported automobiles from Japan or from Europe? Or elsewhere uh, would constitute a threat to U.S. national security. Isn't that a bit a little bit far-fetched?
1: It is far-fetched, especially when you look at the origins of the of the of Section two three two. When the Trade Expansion Act was passed, the Kennedy Kennedy administration had in mind the Soviet Union and wanting to give the president the discretion to do things in trade policy that in ca- to push back against the Soviet Union in case anything like that arose. So to compare a, a, an auto uh, import from Germany with uh, with with uh, uh, the kind of challenge, systemic challenge presented by the Soviet Union, is a bit far fetched.
0: Okay, well, um, but we've been here before, as far as efforts to negotiate uh, trade and other m- trade affecting measures between the United States and Europe. Right, this is not the first time we've we've tried to do this.
1: Right, I mean, in, I would say the, the, the there, were, there were two uh, kind of major attempts. One was under the uh, George W. Bush administration. They, which launched uh, with a great a strong uh, support uh, from Chancellor Merkel the transatlantic economic Council that focused more on on uh, regulatory issues um, some very practical kind of detailed matters and then I think the high point for the moment was under the Obama administration when which launched uh, in cooperation with uh, the European uh, Commission the transatlantic trade and investment partnership those negotiations uh, went on from 2013 into the Middle or so of 2016, and um, they, I would say, reached an impasse. And I think, I think that when you look at uh, transatlantic trade relations, um, they they can seem on the one, it can seem on the one hand inevitable that we should do a big, comprehensive and ambitious trade agreement. And on the other hand, it can almost seem impossible. I say that because as you look at the way that the world the, the multilateral trading system in inside the WTO has become more ungovernable there hasn't been a new trade agreement reached at the multilateral level since 1993 we're having seeing a lot that it's, that the trade dis, uh, settlement uh, trade, uh, dispute settlement procedures in the WTO are becoming contentious when we see that those sort of um that kind of evolution then you say to yourself well then it makes sense for the two two big um uh, economic superpowers the US and the EU to get together and try to move forward uh, the trading system uh, on their own, sort of put put that multilateral avenue on on pause, and then do something together. On the other hand, it can seem impossible because, as we saw from the TTIP negotiations, the the U.S. and the EU are both sort of proud economic superpowers. Their economic models aren't exactly alike. You have a lot of strong constituencies in both places that want to make sure that certain things happen and other things don't happen. And so there, it sort of uh, it continues uh, t- for the last ten years. I'd say sort of. 10 To to move back and forth between these two extremes. One thing I will say for the uh, process that was launched in July uh, by Presidents Trump and Juncker is it is it is a fairly uh, uh, down-to-earth, sort of practical approach, item by item. And uh, if there really uh, is some, you know, some some. real conviction behind that 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 does it might have a chance of success well and that that sense of urgency
0: i think is is important because as you as you noted past efforts at negotiating trade between the united states and the european union have taken a long time have not always been successful and that's true of of all international trade negotiations that we've seen up until now so what what do you think peter can one could realistically hope to achieve in the near term, uh, in order to sh- demonstrate momentum, and to to keep uh, this negotiating process on a good track.
1: Yeah, we're certainly in a in a period of impatient politics, so the the near term uh, looms large. Look, there are some things that were. Um uh, where, where, the, where the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, the TTIP process, made some, made some good progress, and that's particularly in the regulatory area. If you look at some things like um, uh, uh, trying to uh, agree on common ways to evaluate the safety of different of different uh, goods, for example, medical devices or pharmaceuticals, cosmetics, uh, even some things having to do with auto safety and car parts, there was some good progress made on all of those areas, and uh, those could be kind of low-hanging fruit that this this new process um, could reach some closure on, and and so how does that how does that work um,
0: outside if it's not a comprehensive agreement. Uh, how can the United States and the EU uh, harvest, as you say, those uh, those areas?
1: Right. Well, there's there's there are ways to do things uh, bilaterally between the U.S. and the EU, which would allow the two sides to uh, respect the 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 spirit and the law of the WTO. And in, in these sort of regulatory areas, they can agree some things together uh, uh, without having to worry about how how comprehensive it is and don't have without having to do a big uh, free trade agreement. We've done, we've we've done some of those things, for example. Uh, i think it was uh f- Four, five, six years ago, the, for example, the U.S. and the EU agreed to recognize each other's way of determining whether a product is organic or not, and that was just done as a one-off. And so now, when you get a, uh, a piece of uh, fruit or uh, coming in from Europe and it's organic, and then then uh, we don't inspect that. We re- we say, well, if you determine it's organic, that's fine. And if the Europeans and import some uh, organic nuts from California and we say it's organic, then they say that's fine too. So we've we've done things like this before. Uh, there was this precedent, and uh, but, and it but, would be but per- those those examples that you mentioned, Peter, the, the,
0: the, that is not as comprehensive as some of the previous efforts in TTIP. tip right.
1: Uh, right. To work and on and so, Yeah, sure. In TTIP, we had uh, we'll, we'll be three chapters. We had the first chapter was on. On trade and goods and services, trying to eliminate tariffs, we had this regulatory chapter, and we also had a chapter that had to do with common global challenges, or, or what you could also call trade rules. So that was a That's sort of WTO reform, is, but not only WTO is, is that reform. That reform, or reform, or 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 writing new trade rules uh, just between the U.S. and the EU. It could be either. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And and so, how quickly do you think? Results
0: are necessary to you know, for for the United States administration to remain on board, and also for the European side. Uh, is is do you have a
1: sense of how quickly that needs to be? I think that goes back um, to a great degree to your earlier question about the auto tariffs. Um, the the Commerce Department is doing uh, a study of whether uh, imports of cars are a challenge to our national security. Uh, at the latest, that report has to be presented in February, but it could be presented earlier. And once the president gets that report, he has to make a decision, I believe, within 90 days. Uh, but he can do it right away. Mm-hmm. And and you know, if you you have to, uh, we have the midterms coming up, and I could see. Whichever way those go, I could see a temptation for the president to impose those tariffs. I say that because if the Republicans retain control, the president might feel empowered and uh, and 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 then and, and believe that uh, he's got the backing of, of, of the people behind him to do something like this. And on the other hand, if the Democrats were to gain either or both houses, I could also see the White House wanting to test uh, how the Democrats are going to come out on trade and whether they would be willing to oppose the imposition of tariffs to protect uh, what, what he sees as protecting uh, auto workers in, in these uh, states in the, in the Midwest, which, which are really battleground states and when the Demo- which the Democrats will want to win in 2020. Mm-hmm.
0: But as you said uh, before, that would also mean basically um, calling off the truce. Um, with the Europeans, because taking that step would make it really hard to imagine um, uh, both sides I continuing think, I, to work so.
1: if, if productively. Th- the Europeans more and more appreciating the challenge uh, from China, but at the same time, uh, just uh, just just as, as any other. Um, uh, in any other uh, country, they have their own politics, and there are still 28 countries and 28 sets of politics they have to deal with. And it's, yeah, it's, no matter how important that China challenge is, it's going to be hard to explain to your voters that you're going to be lining up with the United States to deal with that China challenge just after they've imposed 25 percent tariffs on your car exports.
0: I, I think that's, uh, that's an understatement. Um, the, uh, I wanted to switch maybe to the, the, the global uh, trading rules, and you talked about uh, that as an area where the United States and the European Union could work together. Um, talk a little bit more about what, what those might contain, and what, what are the issues that the US and the EU largely agree on that they could try to promote in a broader
1: international context, or at least between themselves? So I think, I think there are two tracks. One is uh, the U.S. working together with the EU to promote reform in the World Trade Organization. And, and these rules uh, date back to the founding, by and large, back to the founding of the WTO in 1995. Just as an example, there are basically no rules on digital trade, electronic commerce, because that really didn't exist in 1995. And this was so the big there's... thing
0: about uh, TPP. Sorry for interrupting, but uh, that that it was uh, one of the first modern agreements right. to deal with uh, the digital
1: aspect of That's America. right. And so there's, that's just one example. But there are also areas where, you would, where it would be, it would be uh, I think, helpful from the transatlantic perspective to update the rules, particularly update them in a way that would oblige China to uh, behave in a way that is closer to the way the U.S. and the European economies behave both domestically and internationally. Some of those things have to do with competition policy, uh, respect for intellectual property, have to do with uh, technology transfer, so there's, there's the WTO track, um, but there's also, um, there is a bilateral track between the U.S. and the EU, and, and a, for example, uh, just one example, it seems to me that if the United States and the European Union agreed on a common definition for state-owned enterprises and a common uh, common tools for enforcing that definition. Uh, again, that's more than 50% of the global economy would think that way if we could bring the Japanese along as part of this ongoing uh, trilateral process, and then perhaps some other countries who think like us, uh, whether that's Australia or Canada or Mexico, a few others. Uh, I think that that would create a kind of friendly leverage that would, where the Chinese would say, gosh, you know, um, it's it's going to be tougher for us not to operate we, the way we have in the global economy, and we may need to see if we... Uh, don't have to reform some of our procedures to to uh, to can if we want to continue major. So, to be so a, a, a definition player.
0: of what is a state-owned enterprise is one thing. It, does that also would that also touch on intellectual property um, or forced intellectual property transfer and those kinds of issues,
1: or would that be beyond the scope in your view? I think that uh, that that could also be done bilaterally, um, but I I think that. Uh, and and some of these things could be done in both tracks. That's for sure. I, I just I'm just trying to think of an issue which is very high profile, uh, and where uh, there should be some pretty strong overlap between the U.S. and the EU. I mean, both both the U.S. and Europe have some state-owned enterprises. We have a, our post office as a state-owned enterprise, for example. Uh, but I think if you you can write those rules in the in a way that protects uh, a, a f- the these sort of enterprises at the same time making sure that you're, you're, you're uh, capturing the kind of challenge Is, China is
0: investment screening also uh, part of this mix because that's an area where the United States for a long time has had the uh, so-called CFIUS process and where individual European countries also in some cases have uh, investment screening measures, but you don't have a unified system at the European level? That's
1: right. You, you, on both sides, you see a sharpening of uh, the screening of foreign investment. In the United States, there's a bill in the Congress uh, which would do that. Uh, in Europe, you've seen in, in Germany, for example, they have changed their laws to uh, create uh, some stricter, a stricter approach to, to in investment. There's more—the um, French and the Germans and the Italians have asked the European Union to, to try to coordinate uh, the, the approach among the member states. And I think yes, I think it would be useful for the United States and the European Union to include that in in these talks and to try to harmonize as much as possible our approaches to inward uh, investment.
0: Well, I'm not going to ask you to make predictions, uh, Peter, um, uh, but I think we will certainly see in the coming month or uh, a few months uh, where the United States is going to head, whether we choose to, uh, you know, hold uh, the truce and uh, try to join forces with the European Union in international trade, and and if not, um, what that impact will be on the ability of the United States to achieve its uh, its international trade and economic objectives. So I want to thank you for being the very first uh, guest on the AICGS podcast, that Zeitgeist. And I want to encourage all of our listeners uh, to go to the AICGS website, AICGS.org, and read Peter's issue brief on transatlantic trade, which was published just recently, and where you can find even more detail about the history and content of US-EU trade negotiation efforts. So with that, I'd like to wrap up and thank you for joining us. And we'll look forward to seeing you next time on The Zeitgeist. I'm Jeff Rathke. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org, or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at AICGS, and Instagram at AICGSDC. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode.